0: Hello. hello, hello, and welcome to Pioneers Post podcast: social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneers Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. Hello and welcome to the Pioneers Post Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, and my guest this week, Atif Chowdhury, founder of two social enterprises, or at least two social enterprises, Diversity and Ability, and Zaytoon. Atif, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tim. So unusually, um, you're you're running two different organisations at the same time, or at least you founded two different organisations. I normally talk to people who are who are going to tell me about just one of those, but um, it feels to me as though there are some important links in both of those, um, particularly in the story that we want to try and get about you and your life and what matters to you. So, could you perhaps? Just introduce yourself and tell us briefly about these two organisations and and what they do.
1: Yeah, sure. Really happy to. Um, So, firstly, I think it's important to say I'm a co-founder of of two. Um, And why? It's just because you know the story is so much more than one person. And even however interesting we are, um, I'm really keen to say that. But yeah, so Zaytun is an organisation in Palestine or in the UK working to support families and farmers and farming communities in Palestine. And also producers right across the West Bank. We started in 2004 and it was made up of really founders who had spent time going back and forth to Palestine, working as international volunteers, Mm. um, observing some pretty horrific things in terms of human rights violations towards communities, particularly Palestinian families. Um, And what we were witnessing was really a militarized occupation that was affecting the lives of a lot of people. Um, When the move was made to build the separation wall or the occupation wall, we knew that that many farmers and farmers and families who produced this incredible olive oil would struggle to tell their stories or trade because of the amount of checkpoints and the wall itself. So we worked to really try and build as fast as we could against the speed of the wall being built a story that would sell olive oil across the world and inspire other organizations to do something similar to us. They too became well-known as a story. I think many of the listeners here would have come across it. It's available in every Oxfam shop in the country. And it's the first olive oil in the world to get the fair trademark. And that was in 2009. Um, And it's an incredible story for a number of reasons. I'll show you a bottle in a second, actually. Um, But it's an incredible story, really, because of a, it's the first time a fair trade organization has been created in the middle of such a global conflict. And secondly, it's an inspiration to many people, including the UN itself, that a social enterprise can exist in amongst such a, a, a tragic and cha- challenging situation. Um, so I really found my voice in Palestine, really, and for a number of reasons. I struggled at school a lot. <laughs> um, those who might know me will remember that. Um, And I struggle to make eye contact with people. I really struggle to to communicate that learning was a challenge for me. Um, I'm a a dyslexic learner who struggled at school. Not unusual, I guess. But it is unusual for Asian people, I guess, to talk about these things. Mm. Or to understand that it's part of life too. Often neurodiversity is a conversation that happens in different silos. And some of those silos are people who know about these things early because they've accessed information around it early Mm. or even diagnosis and such so I came back to the UK and I wanted to create a company that I needed when I was younger I wanted to create an organization that would pioneer intersectional realities for people who don't get to hear about these things that will factor in that learning differences can be traumatic but they can be innovations they can be aspiring and aspirational they can be as some people like to use language around superpowers um, and perhaps that is there But the critical thing that I wanted was a sense of everyday belonging. And so for diversity and ability, that's what we do. We created an organisation that's won lots of international awards. It's now advising the UN on their inclusion roadmap. Um, So there's symmetry between the two organisations there.
0: And I understand that you you actually were pitching to the UN this week, weren't you? Or maybe not just pitching, you were actually doing the advice, sorry.
1: Yes, yeah, we were delivering it across on leadership training yeah, wow, yeah. absolutely the legacy of their leadership um so for me i guess you know there are parallels between the two in terms of answering a call about marginalization and, and and injustice that but also i love thinking about these things and i suppose i'll stop on this point is that both diversity and ability and zaytun are there to talk about the wonders of people who don't get to tell their stories hmm. and to recognize what do we miss when so many people facing barriers aren't able to show up and what do we miss rather than what do we all miss rather than just them
0: sure yeah i i i think that um i can resonate with that actually i mean i have um uh, some personal reasons with my own family about uh, uh you know people who have not managed to um if you like succeed or be heard perhaps um, and they they have plenty of talent and plenty of things to share that would be valuable to others and um uh finding ways to give them that opportunity but also to give other people the opportunity to benefit from them um I think is really, really important. So I um I really resonate with what you've been saying. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna just ask some um some sort of businessy technically type stuff now to get a sense of um uh the sort of business side really of both zaitune and diversity and ability and i wanted to you to just explain to me in facts and figures really um wh- when you started both of them where where were you in year 1 revenue profit and impact so and then afterwards we'll sort of look at well, where's it where's it got to now
1: sure sure Um, So diversity and ability, I think that's an easy one to start with. So we've supported probably over 80,000 people on assistive technology training, one-to-one support universities. It's 11 years old now. So universities across the country and and as I've touched on even Commonwealth of Learning and the UN. But in that support, I worked in order to fund the work. I worked as an assistive technology trainer. And the the savings I could get from that, I put into the organization. And so that first year was really tough, because on one hand, and I think a lot of folks will relate to this, on one hand, you're trying to be the social entrepreneur that advises organizations and charges them for that advice or charges them for that social change. But the other hand, you're trying to do that one-to-one support. But that one-to-one support is intimate, it's meaningful, it gives you a sense of joy and connection to the work but it's not going to let you grow the business. But for the first year, that's exactly what I had to do, was keep doing the one-to-one support. And from there, I was able to start the business. But it was also immediate for me that the more I do one-to-one support for individuals that are facing disablement or neurodiverse individuals, the less of business growing I would do. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, think that's, I think that if anyone's listening to that are in a startup stage, there's a lot to think about there. So in that first business, I think in that first year, we made close to 60,000, but I was including my whole salary yeah. doing one-to-one support rather than the consultancy work. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so it was only when I started to trust myself that I could take on new members to join the work and that we could find founders and other founders to join us, that it started to take
0: shape. I like that phrase, trust yourself. So is this trusting yourself as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a business leader?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there are, um, I mean, it's a great conversation. I don't know how how much space it can get or, or should get, but there are CEOs and there are founders, yeah. you know, and someone says, well, often they're the same thing. And I said, absolutely. Often they're the same thing.
0: Often they have to be the same thing at the beginning, don't they? That's the challenge.
1: In my case is an example of that. I'm a CEO and I'm a I'm a co-founder. But I also think when we look at the heart of leadership, we have often read, and you can apply that to political statespeople and revolutionary leaders too. There are people who might start a revolution and they create something incredible, but they're probably not the right person to run an organization or run the country. Nelson Mandela is an inspiration to me for a number of reasons, but part of his leadership strength was recognizing he had to help heal a nation. He did only one term. He was, of course, he could have done two, but he chose not to. And, and so a lot of founders can create organizations because that's their spark. That's the innovation that lives in them. But people expect founders mm-hmm. to be CEOs immediately. But there's no CEO school that founders necessarily go to. And that's the challenge. Whereas there are people who do operations very well or financial obligations incredibly well who don't necessarily innovate things, but they run things very well. Yep. And it's knowing how do you lean on the strengths of where your strengths are. Keep playing to your strengths, and recognise the trust you've got to build in yourself. To know you can't know it all, and nor should you be expected to.
0: Yeah, and I guess you you mentioned uh, you know about people exiting as well. I guess and and there's a there's an issue of power, isn't there? But there's also an issue of. Um, uh needing to needing to create an income for yourself. And so um part of the challenge I think for people running social businesses is, is that um you know some of them like to hang on to the power um and it's good to be able, so with Nelson Mandela it was he I th- he probably recognised he could step away from that and he needed to. And it wasn't about him. Um but but also I think if you're in a position where we'll actually you can't afford to bring someone on who can run the business better than you, that can be an issue, can't it?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. It fits really to the heart of capacity building. Yeah. You know, If I use Zaytune as an example, we were an incredible innovation. We are a credible innovation. But for the first few years, we had to work for free. Yeah, you know, right. To put this together. So we did different jobs. It's a bit like... Um, being in a band that gets this amazing story but you forget that you were in that band but you were also uh, working as a waiter somewhere or you were doing you were a teacher somewhere or you were you know. And
0: so you go and do your consultancy and then you go and pack olive oil in the evenings basically
1: yeah essentially quite yeah. literally yeah but the difference was in Zaytun if you one of the greatness of it is so many people were inspired by the story of it that the idea that this could even happen yeah that we got a lot of a, an awful lot of love, and I mean that. I don't say that lightly. From we used there was no social media in the same way there is today. There was no crowd surfing back in two thousand four. Uh, Crowdsourcing, sorry, um, there was crowd surfing there. Um <laughs> So, so in in two thousand four, we put, used Yahoo groups. We used groups of the um, you know the the the, the sense of rage that people had about Iraq and the invasion of that. So in the space of Zaytun, we had so many people using, we used Yahoo groups to ask people would they be interested in supporting this? And it was incredible because, again, there was no crowd sourcing as a language in those days. But there were so many people who hadn't met us and sent us checks. I'm aging this a bit. But they sent us these checks. And they were able to help build us as an organization to sustain the idea that we could put orders in. It wasn't enough to pay us, but it was enough to put in the first set of orders in. So it's one thing to start a business like Zaytun, and this is it here. Um, some people have seen that bottle before, but to recognize that every, everything that we could have needed to be into buying stock. We were gonna figure out how we could earn an income from it later on. That took years, it took a lot of hard, but what made this work? And I think the story is the same for DNA, that so many people are enamoured and excited by the idea that these things are happening. The diversity and ability in an organization is completely run by lived experiences that's not a charity. And proving it can be done without being a charity model. It captures the imagination that the way some businesses that are architecturally all the eyes and the dots are done, but they haven't captured enough love from people to say that people will show up and do things for you. We found, in Zeytun's case, people offering us warehouses for free. In the case of DNA, I found people willing to help and make sure that our story got seen and that more people could understand it better and access its story.
0: So DNA 60k first year, Zeytun, what was that?
1: I think that in terms of the checks, and I think that's the thing that I remember most, it was thirty-six thousand pounds worth of checks, yeah. which was incredible.
0: Yeah, amazing.
1: You know, complete strangers. Yeah, um, and I think in the first year of the turnover, I doubt that we probably broke even. Right. You know?
0: Yeah. So both Zaytun and and DNA, where are you? Where are you now with both organisations? Just to give a sense of how they've grown, really.
1: Yeah. So I'm pleased to say, look. Both organisations have a turnover over three million. You know, both organisations are employing people and are in profit, and both organisations are meeting the needs of so many people, be it in Palestine or the West Bank, or be with people who just make an income from selling the products. In the case of DNA, it's the same thing. It's, you know, there are 42 staff members. We started in my home and we've grown to an organization that's supporting universities like Imperial, like Oxford and Cambridge, but also to smaller organizations who really are working to widen participation for disabled learners, who are working hard to recognise the social economics that are barriers to higher education. And we work in those spaces. We work with Crisis and Samungos to support neurodiverse learners who are facing homelessness, but do not know that part of this stress and the isolation that they face is becoming a lack of support or, or, or access to even a conversation that might help them understand dyslexia or or autism and and so on
0: I wanted to ask about both of those of these organizations when did you realize that you were onto something special but I mean in a way that's a silly question because it's obvious that you knew they were something special from the very beginning because that's why you started them Um, I suppose from a business perspective my question is when did you know you could put a successful business model behind both of them?
1: I'll tell you next week. (laughs) And since uh, that, while it's funny, I suppose because I don't know if you do know. I mean, that's the truth. And I I hope this isn't, I'll I'll illustrate that. Because, you know, for every innovator and, and, and if you think about the idea of, how many women get to run businesses, you know, get to really run them and see, and for every black and brown led social enterprise that's created, which is plenty, it's community driven, but how many of them actually get staying power or supported to have the social staying power that says, okay, we get that you've created something for a marginalized community, but too many incubators don't get how hard it is to have the staying power to do that, that the lack of social resources are there. And so, you you don't I don't think there was a day where I got when wow this is brilliant I know I've got a plan or I know this is going to work uh, that that I think is something that probably lives in my heart even today and even though I can tell you that we're advising the United Nations it still lives that sense of doubt is there but then you sort of think well is it doubt no not really I think it's curiosity and, and humility and then I think if I was to speak to the younger me and say hey look dude it's terrible you've got so much imposter syndrome but yeah but you know what you're going to lead people you know what it's important you hear people you know what if you didn't have that humility with that much responsibility then maybe you are a boss and you're a bit of an a-hole and so if that imposter syndrome helps you stay grounded then lean into it it's good you need it it keeps you listening yeah it keeps you moving it doesn't have to be a bad thing it's a question of whether or not you're able to say, right, what strategy and planning do we need to deal with right now that makes this day mentally a little bit calmer, and then because we're going to make some good decisions here, so what do we have to do to address that? And then when we start making these decisions, how much can we forecast? Now, Palestine, we have to forecast. We have to do it because it's so important. We have to, and it's an incredible team that runs a tune today that's so in, deeply involved in this far more than I am. And they are building these forecasts and budgets and running them. We started say, tuned in the space where that was just so hard to do. It was, there was a road we could use one day, and the next day there's a bulldozer there. And the next we, we used this road, but now there's a checkpoint and nothing is gonna pass through there. Or the olive flyers come through, or the EU is only subsidizing EU members, which, and so on and so on. So you're dealing with the consistency of those changes you can plan and mitigate risk, and you can have a risk register and you can start looking at those things. And that's a form of planning. But now, here we are as an organization, 18 years old in the case of Z2. Of course, it has a two year plan and it has a five year plan, and they're different. DNA is the same. DNA has to have a plan that navigates how diversity and inclusion is being celebrated in a culture that traditionally saw it as a deficit. We're seeing, we're constantly being in demand by big organizations that say, Beyond our CSR's or doing good or being egalitarian, we are missing the diversity of thought. We realise that our teams are not sharing differences enough. DNA, can you help us unlock that? And we're like, yes, absolutely, (laughs) of course we can, and we can show you a sense of pride without being, whilst being whilst keeping it very realistic to the barriers that people are facing.
0: At what point, with particularly with DNA? Did you feel as though you were in a position to move it on from being that sort of consultancy with a few people helping you, though, to having a team and then having a sort of senior team who could essentially get on with running the business? At what point did you know, well, we we know that we're going to get a certain amount of income coming in? And and ultimately, you know, you're mentioning the, it was an inset day today. So, you know, you've got a family to support. So when did you... When did you think, OK, I feel as though I, I know I can support my family now, you know, because those are all on, on an entrepreneur's journey. They're quite critical moments in your life when you have to sort of make some decisions, aren't they, about um, balancing that that need to create something that you really believe in and and both letting go of certain things in order to allow it to grow in the right way. Um, but in a way that you're still going to be safe and your family's going to be safe and secure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I guess I'm speaking to you, Tim, but I'm also speaking to people listening who are in a similar position, mm. you know, and, and worried about whether they should make those kind of leaps away from secured nine to five jobs into a space. And if you aren't worried about that, then I don't know what I can't relate to that because I would I was deeply worried about that but I'm look I'm really fortunate and I think it goes back to the first thing that I've got such an incredible folks around me and but the finance director so my wife she's also one of the founders of of DNA although we weren't married at the time but we were partners at that time she's the finance director we couldn't be more different I mean our values are exactly the same we, I don't think in in eighteen years we've ever argued once about something on the news, you know. Um, I, and, we, and we, she worked also in Palestine as well. Um, but but we we see things so differently that it's so helpful that diversity. I can see when there's going to be a problem. I need to know what are the ramifications of it in terms of numbers. And it sees that so quick that it really helps me make a decision. And but it's a decision I don't right does rest on my shoulders. But it's not a decision I choose to make on my own. It's one that I try to factor through. But it is going to speak strongly to saying, okay, here are the things that I don't do well. They don't define me. They just say something about where support is needed. But here are the things that I clearly do better than most people. And until I start owning that, we're never going to see how good it can be. And I think that's the same for so many entrepreneurs who are neurodiverse, I mean Richard Branson's the famous story I guess and he leans into that so well but there's so many other examples of positive stories coming from different class backgrounds that we have to lean into more
0: Are you good at letting some things go then I mean in a, in a way you're. it's unusual that you've got your wife or your partner work, working with you and so there's a trust there that um you know in a colleague that you wouldn't necessarily have that level of trust with um otherwise but I mean, some some entrepreneurs, some leaders, feel as though they need to do everything, micromanage everything. Sometimes they need to at the very beginning, but it's it's often a challenge, isn't it? How do you how do you stop doing the things that you're bad at?
1: Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. I I, I think that it's not healthy. You know, uh, it's not healthy. And and look, when I interview people, I always look at my team and think, look, I don't expect, and that's the whole of my team. You know, like listening to this um I hope they reinforce it. But look, I don't, or, or not. But I don't expect a hundred percent from them, because, and I explain the context. Because my kids deserve a hundred percent from me, and they don't get. That, you know what they get is a dad who's really loving and caring, but is busy and has to re- reset that button all the time because of the pressures that are coming at him from different places. I am a father. I'm a husband. Um, I'm also a CEO, and, and I'm a director of, of different organisations. I'm on the board for Disability Rights UK. There are lots of conflicts, challenging positions. So there's only so much you can give an organisation, and if you are then to say I'm going to give 100%, on it, well something's going to give, and something's not going to sustain that. I am really grateful, I guess, in the sense of trust, and that matters a lot to me that people share these values and those values they shared before meeting me they shared these values before these organizations even existed so it found a space to say i will not feel i've got to do everything but i have certainly going to give enough to this to make this work no one person should feel they have to be everything to everything everyone um, I just don't see that as a sustainable way of doing it in the first few years absolutely the answer is you are doing everything because your passion is driving you and when in the case of Two, if you're not getting paid and you can't get paid easily because of the story and the challenges not because of the will then you are forced to do so many things but in that space you're also seeing things that you wouldn't see elsewhere um, because you're letting go because other volunteers or other people joining in the journey
0: i would ask you some more questions about leadership and your leadership experience but before we do that um i'd like to know a bit more about your own background you you mentioned you you talked about the younger um atif but where were you where were you brought up um what was it what was your upbringing like what was your education like you mentioned that you had some challenges in school so tell me your 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 growing up story
1: so i I grew up in a place um for siblings um you know, and we grew up in a place called Thamesmead I don't know if people know that or not um yeah i mean it's, it's a very ginormous council estate it's huge sure you know? um people know it it's not from very nice reasons, but in the eighties it wasn't so bad you know it was it was not a bad place to grow up in some ways um Clock got oranges filmed there, beautiful things, misfits, those kind of things. And it's seen as a really a negative place to grow up. But it was home, you know? And um and I grew up really sort of masking a lot. It was a it turns me it is a very working class uh town. Um in those days it was very white working class the communities, and being Asian with different names, different cultures not having any Asian. So growing up, my closest friend was a Chinese friend and a Jamaican friend. And the idea of Bengalis or other Bengalis was just far away. It happened in East London and that's not where we were. (laughs) Um, And so it did really matter. None of that really matters. What matters is do people share your values regardless of culture or or skin color and, and so on. But you do find yourself often feeling quite powerless. In my case, I really struggled with dyslexia, but didn't know what it was. I really struggled with articulating my feelings about the world, mostly because I didn't find many people that wanted to talk about those things. You know? uh, and I did my best learning, not in school at all, but through conversations with adults, and mostly from the news. I'd watched the news a lot. To understand what was happening, I did most of my learning from te- television. I'm totally honest, um, and you spend a lot of time in your head thinking, as you know, especially when you've got ideas, and especially when those ideas don't really rest, you know, And then you're wondering what is a good, safe idea to say, you know, and what isn't. And large, apart from two close friends and one teacher, I don't think I expressed a single idea at school at all and I don't think that's unusual you'll often hear very funny comedians who might be short and they're quick and they're very fast but they've had these jokes in their heads but with the chance of often being bullied they'd never say it but that doesn't mean they're not funny it doesn't mean they didn't learn to think of these jokes and the irony attached to that quite early some folks I guess peak quite early in the towns that they're in and they stay there and other people take a long time to find their sense of identity or or, or I like to say the speed of trust. Trust in themselves. And sometimes when you do find it, it can take just six seconds. But sometimes you'll never find it and it takes 60 years or a lifetime I never got to find out how good a person could be at something. In my case, look, I had to go to Palestine. I saw kids that had a harder childhood than I did. They had a harder time of things. And in that space, I came back and think, okay, it was tough for me. There were other things that I can't really explain on the podcast, but they're things that, that were pretty awful. But at the same time, nothing was promised. and Nothing was guaranteed or assured. And when I could see kids wounded by such political travesties, and yet here they stand, then <laughs> I thought, okay, what can I do?
0: So when you went to Palestine, you would have been, what, late 20s or mid-20s or something?
1: Uh, yeah, late 20s, yeah. Uh,
0: and and what um, what did your journey been sort of between school and then? Had you gone to university? Did you have an initial job? Had you gone into a particular career?
1: So I left school at 16, yeah. which wasn't unusual for a lot of people with um, intense age. College or university wasn't a thing, not once do I remember once having a conversation about college. or or university and the entire school I went to and I I hadn't I looked back and realized that's just really not a good thing you know but it wasn't once a conversation um we were all less school at 16 I don't know anybody that didn't you know from my time so it took me time so I went to I managed to get a job in a bank which I was grateful for I was not suited for it at all I was terrible Um, I did I did it for five years and I studied banking exams not, no reason ever to realize like I don't have GCSEs that can help me. I've got to get something. I didn't even want them. Um, but as I was doing it, and it was a real pinnacle life moment for me, I was queuing up, and I was 18, and I looked across, and there were people doing A-levels in psychology, or about to. And they just looked like they were about to have more fun than me. And I was looking at my queue, and I was drawn <laughs> to the people in the other queue. And sure enough, that's what I did. I went, and despite wearing a suit and all those things, I went across and joined in psychology A-levels. It changed my world because I met new friends and I met the conversations I wanted to have as a youngster and I met the kind of friendship circles that really mattered, truly mattered to me, rather than people who were just masking the idea that they want to work in a bank or they they need to. And Perhaps there's nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't for me. But the, it took me five years to study at night time and to keep working in the in the bank and to keep supporting you know, my own parents and income that they needed and and to get into university. And so it took time. And then even in that space, I still didn't know that I was dyslexic or ADHD or anything like that. I just thought I wasn't bright and I hope people don't find out. <laughs> you know. And in that space, <laughs> having those ideas, I kept thinking about things that should happen and could happen. Um, but I found every day I was healing and every day I was sharing ideas and every day I was meeting people that wanted to hear them more. And my circle started to change around me. Eventually, I got to university um, a little bit later in life, but my whole world opened up. I met different people from different class backgrounds, different cultures, all comfortable to have the conversations that I felt quite lonely in. Um, but it was in my late twenties. Yeah, it was after nine eleven. I'd finished my master's degree in political conflict and development at a university called SOAS. And there I got support for dyslexia for the first time. I met an incredible tutor who really thought I was brilliant, but struggled to read my essays. <laughs> and instead of writing me off, he kept asking me to verbalize them as to what I would say. And he would struggle to mark them, but he kept saying, this is brilliant. Why, why don't you write what you just said? <laughs> and I would always like, I thought I did. <laughs> and, and he helped me get assessed. It was a, it was a really helpful, start 9-11 happened shortly after that the whole world was watching so many so much havoc in the middle east and i felt that we needed more international witnesses and more international presence before the world just gets even more scary you know um and that was a calling for me
0: okay i'm gonna ask you now some some questions about leadership and kind of what it's like basically stuff that you've had to deal with so first of all greatest challenge that you've had to face as a social business leader and how did you deal with it and these can be relatively sort of quick fire sort of answers.
1: Sure I think the greatest challenge um, in the case of DNA I would say the pandemic in some ways when you're watching so many businesses folding disappearing and I have a team made up, you know, of 86% of my team are disabled. Yeah. And we're this good at what we do, not despite that, but because of that. But recognizing that more of my team have good reason and right reasons to shield. And to see, and what does that mean for us as an organization? And yet we furloughed only one person because they wanted to be. We discovered that mutual aid organizations and universities needed our support more than ever. We needed organizations that are looking for the very experience that my team is made up of, and the technology they use, had to become normalised for everybody to access and get through this. So that was really challenging time mentally, um, but it was also a time when I realised how needed diversity and ability is. And to this day, the 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 echo effects of that of what that taught the world, and the Stanford DNA is still there. For Tun, I think I was sort of so sort of touched on it already the idea of the entire shipments and all the money that you've got and put into shipments can just disappear because they can be sent anywhere and you're essentially starting again each time, you know, but you're just getting a little bit braver and recognising you've got a little bit more friends than you thought you did.
0: Okay, how about your biggest mistake? What, what do you regret or what's the biggest thing you thought, I just shouldn't, should have done that differently?
1: Um and I think it I think in largely I think yeah what is it what could you say is your favorite mistake, and I think that's a it's a good question to ask. I think I would truly say to trust myself more, you know, and to look at leadership in in the spaces of vulnerability rather than just strengths alone. I've made mistakes where fear has dictated the terms of the conversation of what we might lose not what we're capable of doing. And I look back and things that haven't gone well, I'm really able to pinpoint it was just fear that made me place more on this. You know, um, I, I don't know if it's really helpful, but to illustrate the point is that sometimes you are dealing with the idea that there's so much talent and spaces and capabilities, but some of that talent is here because of trauma. Some of those traumas still live in people along with the talent all at the same time. I think leaders, great leaders around the world can testify to that. You know, The greatest inspiration as a leader for me, I've said already, is Nelson Mandela. But trauma is there, but talent is there. So it's sort of recognizing what is the role you have and the obligation you have to so many people who don't have the agency or the choices that you have as a leader. And how does that inform your decision? rather than your reactiveness, which is just human. But it's not necessarily helpful.
0: I am gonna ask you about um burnout very briefly. Is that something you've experienced? And and connected to that, um how do you find time for yourself and your family? What do you do away from the business to kind of keep happy and sane?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And well look and and this is a brilliant question because by now, you know, as I said, so my finance director is my wife. And my finance director dangerous. says very...
0: Calm, Great, very calm,
1: yeah. The finance director says to the CEO, these are the numbers, this is what we've got to think about, this is how we've got to close some things and get things going. Absolutely right. My finance director my, and the CEO should not be talking about these things in front of the children ever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they shouldn't be talking about these things in the weekend at all. Yep. So we have a rule now between Gideon and I, to not talk about the business at all in the weekend. If we have a question, we can wait till Monday. If it needs to be voice noted into a phone because maybe the short term memory is feeling anxious, or and then so be it. Then you've done it. Mm-hmm. You parked it on the phone, and we'll deal with it. But it's really important because that those children are only going to be this age once, you know, and they're at school. So there's that bit in terms of burnout. Like many people listening, I don't think I have ever burnt out and known that I burnt out until after. You know. So when you think about burnout or mental health loss or well-being, it's very difficult to know that this is what's taking control of you at the time it's happening. Usually, with time, maybe months after. Usually, sometimes on a a holiday or a space of real kindness. You know that you think. Oh, I wasn't well, or I was making judgments that weren't great, or I was really reactive. Why did I do that? You know, and so it's being deeply tuned into that as best you can because you know a part of you will, will go into, you know, what people call flight or fight. And so, yes, have I been burnt out? Absolutely, cranky, yes, absolutely. Um, and in that space you know learning isolation has been part of my childhood you know the loss of one of my parents at a very young age i was only one and so that all those things affect a person's life anyone listening to this will the question then i guess is really about does burnout really mean is about about your identity so are these things that are challenging or traumatic or whatever you want to call them Are they who you are or are they barriers that you're facing and for any good leader is to be able to separate the two to know that this disabling barrier is it a physical difference in my life is it because we use wheelchairs or is or is it because there's mental health loss which is one of the biggest disabilities in the world are these things happening to us and need support for us or are they who we are now, if they're who we are, then it's very difficult to pick yourself back up again, because you won't necessarily have the self-actualization to say you deserve any better. So being able to say, I deserve better, and I'm capable of doing better, and when I do, look what happens. You know? That is tough work, and easy to say, but tough work. Believe in it, really believe in it. And to find people who believe in it for you is critical to any leadership. And and you know, and it was touched on it already in this podcast. Being the kind of guy you needed when you were younger, going back to that is is something that I think is really helpful for me.
0: What what's the next big exciting development on the horizon for for you, for the for the social businesses that you run, would you say?
1: I I think that knowing that they can be successful without me is what feels really imperative i think zaytune definitely i i love zaytune it's a real passion and i love what but it's also an incredible team and you know i i think this is the joy of knowing that you can be a founder but you don't have to be the operational head of something and nor am i in the case of zaytune that you can be a revolutionary but you don't have to be a political statesman you know and and so on and in the case of DNA being able to, to look at DNA as its success and its influence and knowing this is brilliant. It's it's a teenager all on its own now. And it, this teenager can leave home and she can have her own keys and she can she can go out you know, and she's safe. Um that's a good thing, you know. Um my next plan I guess is really about an idea that I have to set up um something that can really change the way bees are I mean, watch this space really, but okay. it's about bees and how we measure the repollination and the we're losing too many bees in this country it's a big issue and i have a wonderful idea that involves children being the architects for regenerating the bee population in this country and it's very really something simple how
0: brilliant um,
1: yeah yeah and i think my kids fostered it so if they're, <laughs> half, if they're half if they're half as interesting in terms of ideas which they are more so then i think there's an idea coming that they will foster and i hope i can get oh, to help what
0: a there. lovely idea we're just going to end with some quick fire uh, questions I, I, I throw two words at you and you need to choose one or the other one um, and some of them aren't very aren't very nice choices but uh, we'll see we'll see so first one uh, profit or purpose purpose business or charity social enterprise uh, <laughs> <laughs> grants or investment
1: investment oh grants and investment great um yeah, investment. It's, it's, long, it's to do with long. I can explain that, but it's to do with longevity. Uh, investment. Yeah.
0: Diversity or equality? Equality. Art or science?
1: Oh, I think they're symbiotic. They, they they're both. They, they. You can't separate those two. Sunshine
0: or snow? <laughs> Sunshine. City break or weekend in the countryside? Countryside. Veggie or meat?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm alone. I'm the only meat eater in my house.
0: <laughs> Water or wine?
1: Ah, oh, no. I occasionally want occasionally wine, but water, yeah, for sure.
0: Olive oil or dates?
1: Ah, uh, easy one for me, which is olive
0: oil. Okay. They're the two, two best products from, say, are not they? It,
1: it, I love them both for different reasons, but olive oil speaks to the history and the heritage of Palestine.
0: All right, Muhammad Yunus or Muhammad Ali? Ali. Uh, and
1: um, Muhammad Yunus, Grameen Bank, wonderful. And as a Bengali, I was a great inspiration for microcredit and changing the world. But Ali is Ali, and, and you know, and he was the only dyslexic person role model that I thought could look like me, and it changed, it changed my world.
0: DNA or Zaytun? Oh God, it's like that. choosing choosing <laughs> between your children.
1: I love them both for different reasons, and and uh, different reasons. Look, um, no, you can't choose between children. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I hold them both close to my heart
0: newspaper or smartphone smartphone emotion or innovation
1: i think that any innovation without emotion is a bit meaningless so i'm going to use emotion
0: evolution evolution or revolution
1: revolution is many. i'm so much wrong
0: doing we can do better <laughs> atif chadri thank you so much for being my guest on the good leaders podcast
1: no, thank you tim um uh, yeah thank you anyone listening really it has been a real joy to
0: Fantastic. You think, you You've been listening to Good Leaders with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com